Thank you, worship team. All right, everyone, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Before I, we get into our message today, I want to let you know tomorrow, um, I'm hoping, uh, that we will have an Advent devotional. Really, it's a, a series of 25 daily offices that I've created for our church um, for Christmas season. And so uh, on our website and on social media, hopefully that will be available tomorrow, but it's taking you uh, December 1st through December 25th with two daily offices uh, per day. And so hopefully that will be available to you. You can look out for that. Now we are um, looking at our Advent series here now, and, and i got to let you know I've been in this text since the summertime. And so if I'm a little bit more excited than usual... Uh, you will understand why. When we think of the Christmas season, we tend to think of gifts and, and gift wrapping. There's something beautiful about a beautifully wrapped gift with the bow on the top. And in our family, Rosie is the resident gift wrapping expert. And so uh, that's what comes to our mind when we think of Christmas, beautiful gift wrapping. But the Christmas story in scripture looks more like my kind of gift wrapping. It's messy. It's not neat. It's all over the place. It's not a pretty sight. And so when we look at the Christmas story in the New Testament, this is what we see, a messy story, a sometimes difficult story to read. And so as we begin our Advent season, and if you're not familiar with the, the, the church calendar, Advent is a season of waiting for his coming. Jesus' ultimate coming again, but in the meantime, waiting for the ways that he's coming for us today, waiting with hope, as we're, which is our theme for this week of Advent, um, as we face darkness around us. And so today we're going to look at a passage, beginning in Matthew 1, beginning verse 1, focusing on the genealogy of Jesus. And I want to say from the start, this is not the best way to start a book. A good book or movie or sermon needs to grab your attention from the beginning. It needs to whet your appetite. But Matthew begins his book with a long list of people who had children, who had children, who had children. There's nothing like, it doesn't give you goosebumps when you're reading it. And yet, uh, I believe there's revelation waiting for us in this passage. And so, hear the word of the Lord. I'm not going to go through all of the generations. I'm going to go through some of them, though. And so listen attentively. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, beginning verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nation. Nation, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the mother of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the, mo- the father of Jesus. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We're going to skip a little further here. Verse 14, Azur, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's our text for this morning. Let's pray together. 
Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would speak to us through this genealogy. Words of power and redemption and hope. We offer our time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. In the past decade, we have become fascinated with our past and learning who we are connected to. So much so that hobby experts believe that tracing your ancestors uh, ranks only second to gardening as America's favorite pastime. Uh, With the advent of the internet, there is an estimated 15 million Americans who use the internet each month to research their family history. Uh, Genealogy websites are some of the most popular websites on the internet. uh, Ancestry.com is among the five largest paid subscription uh, sites on the internet with over 850,000 paid subscriptions. And so there are many reasons why people look into their genealogy. Many people want to know where they came from. They want to know who they were connected with. They want to hear stories of people who have gone before them. And in the process of discovering where you have come from, Time and time again, people come across family secrets long hidden away. And these family secrets have a way of revealing our family and revealing something about the people we belong to and ultimately something about us. In our text this morning, we encounter Jesus' genealogy. And in the process of examination, we come across some family secrets And some family scandals. And these secrets teach us something, not just about Jesus' family. It teaches something about the nature of God and how God relates to us. The book of Matthew begins with a genealogy. And the genealogy really can be seen as a family tree. And on the the surface, nothing's interesting about a genealogy. Nothing's exciting. Nothing seems to be of spiritual value. But to the contrary, many unchurched people, people who are not familiar with scripture or, or church for that matter, one of the reasons they don't read the Bible is because of genealogies. I've had friends come up to me and say, Rich, I I would read the Bible, but it's all about this person begat that person, and that person begat this person, and this person begat that person, and and I'm tired of the begatting. By the time the begatting is over, I have no time to get to Jesus, and so it's just boring. This is what people say. But what I want to show you is that at the very beginning of the New Testament, we have some of the clearest signs of the grace of God and some of the clearest signs of the gospel and God's love for us. A genealogy is important because in ancient times, it connected you to your family line. And if you were a a public figure, an important figure like Jesus was, people wanted to make sure you were really connected to the right people. And in this case, Jesus' genealogy was to clearly articulate that Jesus was in the royal line of David. And it was important to be in the royal line of David because the Messiah was to come through the family of David. And so here's Matthew, the gospel writer. Matthew is introducing Jesus. He has the holy task of introducing Jesus to the world around him. And Matthew is seen in some respects as a PR director for Jesus, a personal public relations director, a campaign director for Jesus. And the job of the public relations director, of the campaign director, is to represent your client, your, your candidate, in the best way Possible. You want to highlight the good things about the person. You, it's always the opposition that wants to dig up the dirt about a, of a candidate. And so much like political campaigns, the, the PR director, campaign director is to let the world know how amazing this candidate is. This is Matthew's job description. But what's surprising about Matthew 
is Matthew is supposed to be showing all the great things about Jesus, but instead of that, Matthew seems to be sabotaging Jesus. Imagine a campaign director digging up dirt against his own person that he's working with. He would not have a job very long. And yet Matthew seems to be sabotaging his candidate. I want to show you how he does it. When Matthew writes Jesus' genealogy, he does something that very few people, if ever, did when they wrote a genealogy. Matthew, first of all, included women in Jesus' genealogy. Now, this is very rare. The only reason someone would include a woman was if the woman was virtuous and helped the cause, helped the case to connect him to the family line. But in this case, Matthew connects four women to Jesus' genealogy. And not only does he connect four women, he doesn't connect like the matriarchs of the Hebrew scriptures. He's not putting in Sarah and Rebecca and all that. He puts in four women that have questionable morality. And not only does he include four women of, of questionable morality, he, he, he includes women of questionable morality who were not even Jewish. And so strike one is just women. Strike two is they're not the most virtuous. And strike three is they're not Jewish. Matthew has struck out already. And yet we see God at work. Matthew lists Rahab, who was a prostitute. Matthew lists Ruth, who, although she was a good woman, she was the product of an incestuous relationship. Matthew lists Bathsheba. He actually doesn't list Bathsheba. He's so ashamed of it. He goes, Uriah's wife. He can't even get around to mentioning Bathsheba. He's so embarrassed about the whole fiasco. He just says, this is Uriah's wife. And then he actually introduces the genealogy with one woman. Her name is Tamar. Now, most of us are familiar with Rahab. Most of us are familiar with Ruth. Most of us are familiar with Bathsheba. But the story of Tamar probably has the most drama. It actually sounds like a, an episode of Jerry Springer or Maury Povich. It is, uh, it's an intense story, and I want to read it to you. Because this story is full of drama. Baby mama drama. <laughs> and so hear this Story found in the word of God. Genesis 38, it says about that time, Judah separated from his brothers. And we're going to focus on Judah and, and hooked up with a man in Adullam named Hira. While there, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He married her. They went to bed. She became pregnant and had a son named Ur. She got pregnant again and had a son named Onan. She had another son. She named this one Shayla. So they have three children. They were living at Kezib when she had them. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Judah's firstborn, Ur, grievously offended God and God took his life. So Judah told Onan, the second brother, Go and sleep with your brother's widow. It's the duty of a brother-in-law to keep your brother's, brother's line alive. But Onan knew that the child wouldn't be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's widow, he spilled his semen on the ground. This is the Bible we're reading. <laughs> so he wouldn't produce a child for his brother. God was much offended by what he did and also took his life. 
So Judah stepped in and told his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow at home with your father until my son Shelah grows up. He was worried that Shelah would also end up dead just like his brothers. He's basically saying, you married my first son, he died. You married my second son, he died. Why don't you live with your father? I'll call you when he grows up. And so Tamar went to live with her father. Time passed. Judah's wife, Shua's daughter, died. When the time of mourning was over, Judah, with his friend Hira of Adullam, went to Timnah for the sheep shearing. Tamar was told, your father-in-law has gone to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, put on a veil to disguise herself, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. She realized by now that even though Sheila was grown up, she was not going to be married to him, the third son. This is where it gets crazy. (laughs) Judah saw her and assumed she was a prostitute since she had veiled her face. He left the road and went over to her. He said, let me sleep with you. He had no idea that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you pay me? I'll send you, he said, a kid goat from the flock. She said, not unless you give me a pledge until you send it. So what will you want me want in the way of a pledge? She said, she said, your personal seal and cord and the staff you carry. He handed him over to her and slept with her and she got pregnant. She then left and went back home. She removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. Judah sent the kid goat by his friend from Adullam to recover the pledge from the woman, but he couldn't find her. He asked the men of that place, where's the prostitute that used to sit by the road here near Enaim? They said, there's never been a prostitute here. He went back to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. The men there said, there has never been a prostitute there. Judah said, let her have it then. If we keep looking, everyone will be poking fun at us. I kept my part of the bargain. I sent the kid goat, but you couldn't find her. Three months or so later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law has been playing the whore, and now she's a pregnant whore. This is the Bible we're reading here. (laughs) Judah yelled, get her out here. Burn her up. As they brought, exactly. As as they brought her out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. Identify them, please. Who's the owner of the seal and cord and the staff? Judah saw they were his. You are the father. That's, that's basically what he said. <laughs> and the grandfather. <laughs> he said, she's in the right. I'm in the wrong. I wouldn't let her marry my son, Shayla. He never slept with her again. The Bible, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Tamar's story is the kind of story that you cover up. Her story is the kind of story that you hide. It's the story that you don't let other people discover. And and these stories are to remain family secrets, and yet they get out. Not only do they get out, Matthew writes it for the world to see. This woman is connected to Jesus. And just like Tamar and the rest of the family, we, we all have stories in our lives that we want to hide. 
secrets from our past, stories from our family's past, things about our past that we are ashamed of. And maybe those things were done by you. Maybe those things were done by a family member. But listen, every family has secrets. And whether it's a secret of adultery or public shame or drug abuse or pregnancy out of wedlock or financial scandal, it's all over the place. And as a result, we run, we hide, and we lie. Because in our society, whenever there is scandal, there is disassociation. Whenever there's scandal, there is disassociation. Take the case with Bill Cosby. For years, decades, Bill Cosby has been seen as the quintessential picture of America's dad. Funny, smart, caring, hardworking. It seems like this man could not do any wrong until recently. Well, Bill Cosby has been accused of raping more than 12 women, more than that, some years ago. Now, I'm not here to weigh in on his guilt or his innocence, but In Bill Cosby's case and in the reaction from the corporations around him, we see a case case study, a classic case study of scandal. Whenever there are scandals, there is disassociation. So much so that what begins to happen is uh, NBC starts cutting ties with Bill Cosby. Uh, Netflix starts cutting ties. TV Land Network, where I saw all the Cosby show reruns, they just canceled the show as well because it is bad business to associate with scandal and in the in the kingdom of business and in the kingdom of capitalism whenever there is scandal there is disassociation because scandal association with scandal is a recipe for disaster this is also why in in political campaigns this is why opponents try so hard to dig up the dirt of their opponents Because if we can associate scandal with a particular candidate, there will be disassociation from that candidate. And so in the kingdom of of business, to associate with scandal is is not right. In the business of, of politics, we disassociate ourselves with scandal. But in the kingdom of God, God shows us a whole nother way. In the kingdom of God, God does not disassociate himself from scandal. God does not disassociate himself from secrets. God does not disassociate himself from your brokenness. God does not disassociate himself from your mess. God associates himself with you. So much so that he says Matthew is connected to this scandal. Jesus is connected to this scandal and that scandal and this scandal. He is showing us what the kingdom of God looks like. In the kingdom of politics, this makes no sense. In the kingdom of capitalism and business, this makes no sense. But in the kingdom of God, this makes all the sense in the world. This is why I love what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. I love that. He is not ashamed of sinners. He even puts them in his family tree. He says, I'm associating with you. That's the kind of God we serve. And so try to imagine Tamar. If someone were to ask her about her life, she would probably respond with guilt and shame. Tamar probably looked at her life with regret. What good can come out of my decision, she probably asked. What redemptive purpose can arise out of this scandalous decision? And in her lifetime, no one could possibly see any good that could emerge out of her life. But in the big picture, God's 
plans were bigger and greater. Because she had a son who 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 has son and a son and had a son so much so that one day her grandson would be born in a manger would grow up and heal the sick would die on the cross would resurrect on the third day in power would be called the son of God what good can come out of Tamar's life the son of God can come out of Tamar's life and And this is why when you read the genealogy, you're reading one of the most powerful illustrations of the gospel. Because Tamar's life was a mess, but out of her mess came the Messiah. Oh, I love that. And out of your mess, the Messiah will come as well. Jesus does not disassociate himself from mess. He enters into the mess. He enters into the brokenness. He enters into mistakes. He enters into it all. And so the good news of Christmas, everyone, the good news of Advent is that God's plans are bigger than your mess. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. I mean, that is really good. Maybe you don't have any mess. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself here. Maybe I'm the only one with a little bit of mess, a little bit of mistakes. God's plans are bigger than your mess. All of us in this room, at one point or another, your life is a mess. You have made decisions that have hurt you and hurt other people. Your life has been a mess at one point or another. You've made decisions that you regret. Maybe you've been trapped in the bondage of sin and addiction. Maybe you consider your entire life a mistake, but the good news of Christmas and the good news of Advent is God is bigger than your mess. Bigger than your mistakes. Bigger than your sins. This is why when Paul says, he says, when sin abounds, grace superabounds. That's the word for it. it. Whenever sin gets this high, grace gets a little higher and overcomes it. Whenever sin abounds, grace superabounds. God is bigger than your mistakes. Tamar had Unfortunate things happen in her life, much in part because of her decisions. Yet in spite of that, God's plans are bigger for her life. God's plans are bigger than your mess. God's plans are bigger than your sexual mistakes. Now, all of us in this room, at one point or another, we've had some sexual mistakes, just like Tamar had a sexual mistake. And you can, you can go to the grave in guilt, and you can go to the grave in shame and live guilty and shame. But I want to tell you something. God's grace, his plans are greater than your sexual sins. Can you say amen to that? It's greater than your sexual. God's his plans are greater than your financial mess, your financial sins and your financial mistakes. God's plans are bigger than your sins. Your sins, your mistakes, your mess does not have the last word. The grace of God has the last word. God's plans are greater than your your sins. But this is what's also powerful about this and the story. God's plans are not just greater than your sins. God's plans are greater than the ways you've been sinned against. 
greater than the ways you've been sinned against. Tamar, she had her part to play, but Tamar was sinned against. Tamar was taken advantage of. Tamar was seen as an object for a man's desires. Tamar was taken advantage of, and yet, in spite of how she was taken advantage of, in spite of the ways that people sinned against her, God's plans were greater than the way she was sinned against, and God's plans are greater than the way you have been sinned against. Perhaps your life situation is the product maybe of your decision, but maybe where you're at today is because someone sinned against you. Maybe you're the product of an abuse. Maybe you've been falsely accused. Maybe you've been on the end of experiencing racism. You've been sinned against faulty and fallen systems. Systems of racism and systems of classism. Or you've been experienced gender discrimination or ageism. Whether you've been taken advantage of or discriminated against because of who you are or the color of your skin. God's plans are bigger than the ways you've been sinned against. And God uses Tamar, who not only sinned, she was sinned against. And God's plans were still greater for her life. And redemptive meaning flowed out of it. God's plans are greater than you, the way you've been sinned against. This is the good news of the gospel. God's plans are bigger than what your family handed down to you. Our families are our mixed bag. We have good in our family, but we have some bad in our family. And everyone in this room, to one degree or another, we experience dysfunction in our families. But the patterns that have been handed down to you, whether it's patterns of divorce or patterns of addictions or patterns of abuse, does not have to have the final word. This is why we do genograms at New Life. When we look back at how we have been shaped and how we have been formed and how we have been deformed, but we don't just look back to see how we have been shaped or deformed. We look back as well to see the God who can redeem us out of the ways we have been deformed. God who has a plan for us out of the pain of our lives. God's plans are bigger than your sins. God's plans are bigger than the ways you've been sinned against. And finally, the good news of Christmas is that through this story, the story reminds us that God's plans are not just bigger than our mistakes. God's plans are bigger than other people's mistakes. God's plans are bigger than other people's mistakes. This is where we, we go, wait a second, Rich, you had me with all that other stuff, but, you know, grace isn't fair until you need some, you know. Other people made mistakes too. And yes, God's plans are greater than other people's mistakes. And so the people of God, in light of receiving this beautiful news, we are to be dispensers of grace to those that have made a mess of their lives. Dispensers of grace to those who have made mistakes. We are to be, we are to identify and associate ourselves with people that have made mistakes. We are to identify ourselves with people that have been sinned against. This is one of the reasons why we had our Thanksgiving feast this past Thursday for homeless men, homeless women. Because at New Life Fellowship, we identify with people that have made a mess of their lives. And we have identified with people that have been sinned against. 
This is why we took the time and Jeff, under Jeff Kolsch's leadership and volunteers around them to create a beautiful space to restore beauty in the lives of people that desperately need it. And this is the kind of church that we are going to be. A church that doesn't disassociate themselves from mistakes and mess and scandal. We are going to be a church that associates with the broken, that associates with the homeless, that associates with the immigrant, that associates with the marginalized, that associates with people that the world disassociates with. We're saying, uh-uh. If Jesus can associate with Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and, and everybody in Bathsheba, we can associate with the worst of the worst, with those who have made mistakes and made a mess out of their lives and be dispensers of grace. And this is why I want to take it full circle. This is why our Christmas offering is so important. Because our Christmas offering later on this year, what we're going to collect is so that we can create this space, this, 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 this building, create a beautiful space that could serve to create beauty in the lives of people. That every room in this place would have a function to create beauty in the lives of people. And so when we come together as a community to cultivate generosity... To restore beauty in this place. We're also restoring beauty in people. And beyond just the Christmas offering. This genealogy reminds us of Jesus' love. Of his immense grace. Not just for Tamar or Ruth or Rahab or Bathsheba. But for you. With all your mistakes and mess and scandal. Maybe people don't even know about and all my mistakes and mess and skit that the world doesn't know about. That Jesus Christ associates himself with you. I love what St. Augustine says. St. Augustine says that a friend is someone who knows everything about you and still accepts you. And in Jesus, we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Someone who knows all about your past, all about your sin. All about your hangups, all about your mistakes, all about the ways you have sinned and all about the ways you've been sinned against. And he accepts you. He adopts you. He takes you into his family. This is the good news of Christmas. This is the good news of Advent. So I want to invite the worship team to come forward. And I want to give us a moment to pause really with this question. Where in your life are you yearning for God's beauty? Where in your life are you yearning for God's beauty? As you look at your brokenness, as you look at the challenges and the obstacles that are before you, where in your life are you hoping for, yearning for God's beauty? I want to give us a moment just to pause. I invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And think about maybe the mess that you might be in right now. And maybe this mess has come because of some mistakes that you've made, some decisions you have made. Maybe you're in this mess because of what someone else has done to you. Maybe you're in a situation right now for reasons we don't even know. And yet God wants to restore beauty in us for ashes. So let's pause a moment and then we'll go into a song of worship. Let's just pause.
Father, we long for the day that your son Jesus will restore beauty in this world fully. We look forward to the ways he's going to restore beauty in our own lives, in this city, in this building, throughout all the earth. And Lord, we come to you with our mess, we come to you with our mistakes, we come to you with our guilt and shame. We come to you with the mistakes that we've made, the sins that we've committed. We come to you with the sins that have been committed against us. And we trust that you are a God who associates with the broken, who associates with the sinner, who offers grace and restoration out of it. And so this Advent season, this Christmas season, may we be reminded that out of ashes can come beauty. The ashes of our families, the ashes of our personal lives, the ashes of our city. So Lord, we sing to you now words of worship, words of gratitude, words of praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Let's all stand and sing together. Found in your hands. Amen. Amen. You know, uh, I love the Christmas season. I love Santa Claus. I love Rudolph. I love all that there. But this is the Christmas story. The Christmas story is one of, of a mess. One of mistakes, scandal, one after the other. And yet we see a God who enters into the mess. Who's not afraid of the mess. Who doesn't associate himself with the mess. He, ent- he enters into it and associates us, us with it, himself with us. So as we close, I want to invite the prayer team to come forward. One of the ways that we enter into the mess is by prayer. We pray for one another and we bring our mess to God through the community of God here at, at New Life Fellowship Church. And so maybe your life is a mess today. Maybe you've made some mistakes. Maybe you've committed some sins. And you've been burdened with the effects of it, burdened with the shame, burdened with guilt. And yet Jesus wants to enter in with you, associate himself, forgive you, restore you, set you free. Or maybe you want to come up for prayer because you have been sinned against. Maybe someone said something or did something, maybe recently or maybe back, way back when, that you realize you still need God's healing touch over your life. You can come up for prayer, whatever you need. And to to my left, we have the Lord's table where Christ comes in. He not only enters the mess, he ends up on the cross, sets us free of our sins. And when we come to the table, we come to the table of grace with all of our mess. We take bread, we dip it in the cup. We are reminded of the God who forgives us and restores us and makes us new and restores beauty in us. So you can come to receive that if you like. I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. And as we close, feel free to use both of these exits in the front. I know it gets pretty crowded back there, so you can feel free to use them.